All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to episode 20 of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. So it's a big moment, episode 20. I, you know, it's a big milestone for us. Uh, John, how do you feel 20 episodes into uh, this adventure? I honestly just can't believe that it's 20 episodes in. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible. I, I don't really know. It's been a different journey than I expected. Occasionally, I'll go back and, and look at the whole list of films that we've seen, and it's kind of incredible how far we've come and how different some of these movies are, and it's been a fun journey. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. It's uh, it's pretty cool to look back and, and think about that we've actually made 20 of these and that we're almost... We're almost in a whole year of doing this, which yeah. is, which is pretty incredible. And also, it's like what we've only done twenty of these. I feel like we've done hundreds. I of know, them. I know, because of how much time we put in. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. And for those who may recall, uh, to our tenth episode, so ten episodes ago, we did a little different kind of uh, cold open, uh, and we talked about we got kind of just did our own Oscar ceremony just for the best picture winners of that decade. So. We're going to do that again for the past 10 movies that we have seen. We expanded the categories a little bit uh, more than we did last time, but uh, still keeping it relatively tight and is only focusing on the best picture winners, not other movies from the past decade, just the best picture winners and giving them different accolades of, you know, you know, something like best director, best actor, actress, screenplay, etc., all that. So Without further ado, let's jump right into it with the Best Art Direction Award. So, John, who do you give the Best Art Direction Award to? I gave Best Art Direction to Lyle R. Wheeler from Gone with the Wind. Now, I picked him in particular because I just, I mean, it goes without saying, the art direction in that movie is insane. It's 100%. beautiful. It's stunning. Obviously, it kind of has a one-up because you have all the color aspects thrown in. Still the only color film that we've seen so far. So a huge shout out to that. I mean, the combination of the costumes, obviously a separate part of production and, you know, movie making. But the art direction is gorgeous and the way they kind of seamlessly connected parts of the South while also using a lot of on-set photography and blending it seamlessly, I thought was absolutely incredible and especially for the time. So, Ben, what did you pick for best art direction? I went with How Green Was My Valley to Richard Day. Nathan H. Duran and Thomas Little. Uh, we talked extensively uh, throughout our episode of How Green Is My Valley about the way they use location, the way that they d- designed the set and the town and, and how integral that really was to tell the story. It still stands out to me uh, for, for I'll, most of the Best Picture winners as one of the best you know looking films and, and just the way that you know John Ford used the set. And you know we even talked about how there's so much German expressionism kind of influencing it. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. So for me, that was the best art direction for a film. Moving on to best score. John, who would you give that one to? I gave best score to Max Steiner for, again, Gone with the Wind. I, I mean, even when we were typing this out just now, I, I couldn't help but sing the intro and the theme <laughs> for Gone with yeah. the Wind. So it's obviously goes without saying just how amazing and catchy that song is. But how much it kind of really shows and and really portrays the perspective of our main character who's kind of defiant and and powerful and truly kind of believes in herself and that's really what the whole film is about is kind of like believing in yourself to kind of overcome any hardship that may come across your way so it's obviously beautiful the whole score is just 
absolutely phenomenal. It's a four-hour movie, so you have a lot of like room to play with and mess around. But how about you, Ben? What did you give best score? I think it goes without saying that Max Steiner, Gone with the Wind, deserves it for me. Uh, even even the year that it came out in 1939, it didn't get to win best score because Wizard of Oz came out, which is understandable. But this still is probably the best score that I think that we've seen so far. You know, definitely the Lost Weekend I think comes in as a close second from this past decade. But uh, yeah, Max Steiner's Gone with the Wind score is absolutely beautiful. It it helps to drive that whole story. It's a four hour film, and the music really does help to like add that emotion again. That main theme is just, it, it makes me tear up every time I hear it. It's very powerful and moving. Yeah, Casablanca and The Lost Weekend, like you said, and, and maybe even Rebecca you could throw in there. I oh think, yeah. Too. A hundred percent. Yeah. Moving on to best editing. John, who'd you pick for best editing? I went with Doan Harrison from The Lost Weekend. And I, I picked The Lost Weekend in particular just because I felt that it was, it felt experimental for all the films that we've seen so far for best, best picture winners. And it felt like to me, it really pushed editing and, and what editing can really do for your character. I mean, we talked a lot about like psychosis and kind of like establishing your point of view for a character and how that kind of comes through with the filmic techniques and editing obviously is one of the biggest things and components of building a film. Right. And I was blown away by some of the editing that I've seen in that film and the crazy transitions and the amazing, uh, kind of intense cuts that kind of show you his point of view and this lost weekend where he's just obliterate and drunk and just so gone yet you really feel connected with him. But the editing really guides you throughout that entire journey in a way where it doesn't feel stale and it really felt like it was pushing the medium for the, further. So I could not give it for that past 10 years. It definitely was worthy in my my opinion. Yeah, this one I think actually had the toughest time picking just because I feel like we're also spoiled from 2021. There are so many great you know edited films and you know, it's very impressive what a lot of these films were able to accomplish. So, but also I know it's so still so early and, and these cuts aren't as, um, aren't as refined, I guess is, is the best word to say, but that doesn't mean it's not good. And for me, the best edited film was Rebecca going to W Don Hayes. And for me, it was just, there was a lot of experimental things going on without the film. I thought that the story was told very concisely. I thought that the, just the way that everything was kind of pieced together. I loved how, uh, how the editing balanced out, you know, this whole idea that you didn't even know the main character's name. And, and it just really helped you guide you through the whole story. And it never felt that things were falling behind. It was always keeping up with the pace. And I just really felt that that was like the most tightly bound film. And uh, so it just for me, it had to be Rebecca. But moving on to best cinematography. John, who did you pick for best cinematography? I went with Arthur Edison or Casablanca. And obviously, I mean, it's an unbelievably beautiful film with how much uh, kind of beautiful pools of light and all the beautiful reflections, all the beautiful shots of the bar and the cinematography throughout, like literally every scene is stunning. I mean, it was so hard to kind of define what is best cinematography. And I felt that way kind of about editing of what, what do we determine? Like what looks most beautiful? And I kind of went with a mix between what was visually stunning. Obviously that has to be a component when we're talking about visuals, but I also want to think about what do you think of as classic Hollywood? And I don't think there's really a film in the last 10 years that we've seen that really expresses classic Hollywood and movie stars and, and the look and everything like Casablanca. And I think it goes without saying with how many times people have kind of spoofed 
the look of that movie, not just the costumes, but the, the beautiful contrasty black and white. I think it's been kind of, at this point, it's basically an Instagram filter called Casablanca. <laughs> like you yeah. might as well just make an Instagram filter called that because it's so synonymous for its visuals and its look overall. So what did you get best cinematography? I went with uh, Ernest Holler for Gone with the Wind. It just, I mean, come on. That movie is beautiful. Yep. It, it's just, it's one of the, I still, to me, I think it's one of the best looking films I've I've ever seen. And the fact that they, you know, there were color films before it, but there weren't color films like that at the time. And so they, they pulled it off so well. It's so, it's so beautiful. I mean, we spent maybe like 20 minutes talking about just color in that movie. And like, oh, yeah. And, and that goes about, you know, it's all the cinematographers, you know, people in the lighting department as well. So it's just, it's a, such a beautiful film and it's, it was a huge feat for 1939. So out of like these 10 movies, they're all black and white. This is the only colored one. Maybe that's my bias, but I think Gone with the Wind deserves best cinematography out of these past 10 films. Moving on though, out of the technical categories to best screenplay. So we're just limiting it. Limited to screenplay, no adapted, no original. I know you love that. I know. <laughs> Not doing best story, uh, but best screenplay. So, John, who, which film won best screenplay for you? I went with Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. And I, again, we're seeing Lost Weekend. We're seeing some repeats here. But I couldn't... This is, again, really hard to determine what's a great screenplay. Like, there's great dialogue. There's great, like, you know, tension built up throughout a lot of these films. But for me, it was what is the complete best story with the best characters that really felt like it was beyond just what we see on screen. And for writing a screenplay, you obviously are kind of writing a format. You're writing a template for what this movie could be and what in your head it kind of is or or what it should be. But from the point of view from when we watch it from the film side, it's it, it kind of evolves and it changes. But to me, this it felt like the screenplay really stuck through. I mean, we got such vivid characters. Obviously, we follow Don, who's our drunken lead throughout the entire film. And it kind of leans on him and a lot of his like lengthy monologues. And you would think that would be a little too wordy and a little overwritten. And, and you could argue that. I think you could definitely argue that. But... For me, it was just how well everything's tied in. I felt like as soon as the movie started, you were right in with the story. You kind of knew who these characters were. You knew kind of the idea of what the film was about at this point. But the way it kind of tied it back in and the way that film's all this big like circle and this loop about addiction and how it kind of sucks you in over and over. And it almost has an ambiguous ending while also having a really satisfying conclusion to our character. And it's really up to you as the viewer to kind of determine whether the cycle will continue. And I just thought... That was really beautiful, and that kind of stood for itself beyond just the film. That was really the basis of that comes from the screenplay and defining who these characters are and defining what the story is about. So I couldn't not give it to The Lost Weekend. So how about you, Ben? What would you give best screenplay? So maybe it's just because I want to give as many of these 10 movies as much love as possible. And I re- and again, I thought about that. Like The Lost Weekend definitely came to mind. Casablanca definitely came to mind. Best Years of Our Lives definitely came to mind. But the one that I chose is You Can't Take It With You for Robert Riskin, the Frank Capra film. Just to me, the way that film balances so many different characters and really the screenplay is able to give every character its own unique voice. Yeah, it's based off a pre-existing play, which I think is still totally okay because it still does a great job of giving everyone, again, that, that voice, that, that, that distinct thing about them. Uh, which comes to the screenplay. And then the dialogue is absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's a, some really you know heartfelt, great scenes between 
you know, Jimmy Stewart, you know, and, 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 and our leading ladies throughout the film. And so it's just like this really, you know, awesome movie. And I, you know, maybe I wanted to give a more films love, but to me, when I was really thinking about it, I was like, wow, that movie really was a great, not only just a great film, but a really good story and great screenplay, great dialogue. So for me, you can't take it with you gets the best screenplay uh, for these past 10 years. Moving on to uh, a category that or a few categories, I think that we're very excited to talk about. First is best supporting actress. Uh, John, who did you give best supporting actress? We're to? Jumping into the meat now. What people oh, yeah. really want to hear. Oh, yeah. So this is also a kind of challenging one and, and one that was challenging in a way where we didn't have that many options to be honest there there wasn't like a huge catalog of standout best supporting actress but to me i think it goes really without saying and i think it would be a lot of people's in the last 10 movies that we watched which is judith anderson in rebecca you know she's this haunting force she's a character unlike we've seen so far really even in all 20 films not just the last 10 years but She's so freaking spooky and she acts so much beyond just her words. You know, it's all in her eyes and her movement of her physical presence on scene. So she really goes beyond just reading words off of a page and and really becomes her own character. And she feels the same way that I was kind of describing a screenplay where she feels like she's beyond just this film. Like, even though she dies, we could like imagine her entire history before with Rebecca or whoever else she may be haunting because I'm sure. She was not the first. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And again, like you can go through so you can go through a few different ones. I think the ones that mainly would have stood out to to people would be Hattie McDaniel and Olivia De Havilland from Gone with the Wind. But I went with Judith Anderson as well as Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca. Spooky as hell. She's creepy. She's a great villain. She, I mean, just that one scene where she eggs on the uh, uh, Joan Fontaine's character, who again remains nameless, just taking her on to, to kill herself and jump out that window. It's just how fucking creepy that is. And she really just has a great command for the role. And uh, I truly loved her performance. I mean, we talked about it extensively in that episode of Worthy that that she was just great, and how she just didn't even get uh, the win for that is it, just you know dumbfounding. So. Uh, Judith Anderson, you get both our votes for Best Supporting Actress. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor. John, who did you give that award to? A recent film. I'm going with Harold Russell from The Best Years of Our Lives. You know, he's definitely a supporting character in the film. We kind of argued a little bit about who is like the lead actor, but he is definitely one of the supporting actors that really just takes the lead of the film in a way where he's not doesn't have the most screen presence but he's definitely the most memorable of the character and he has you know that connection where it's kind of hard to not think about when you're watching something especially with so much history and context which is that uh you know he's a real victim of world war ii and he really experienced the horror of losing his limbs and then bringing that and like portraying that directly in the film it's hard not to like you know link that directly to his performance but his performance especially as a non-actor is absolutely incredible it's so heartfelt and honest and not what you would expect especially when we talk about in uh, today's episode later on it's a very soft and subtle performance that you completely understand from its first frame and it's it's handled with such grace and I think that's all because of Russell and just how well he really handled the role how about you Ben? Yeah, I, I think that this is probably the easiest one to choose. Harold Russell, best years of our lives. I, 
I again I said it in that episode where I to me it's one of my favorite storylines out of any of the best picture films of, of all time and maybe it's any of any film I just absolutely love his performance I love that storyline or you could have had a whole movie of just that of just his character coming back from the war the way that Harold Russell as a non-actor came into the role and how he was able to establish himself and really give like some, some chilling moments and some great lines and I absolutely wonderful and to me it was a hands down easy pick Harold Russell moving on to best actress John who did you pick I went with Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind you know she carries that film I don't really remember the exact percentage but I remember being very high like 60 something percent of how much she's in the film and how many frames she's like physically present in and she really does carry the film. The whole film is really on her shoulders, and it's really up to her to give a performance that's so unique because we have such a long runtime of this film, and it's supposed to kind of portray her as a really young girl, like 16 or 17 or something along those lines, and progressing and becoming an adult and changing and not only growing as a human, but also kind of being broken as a human and then kind of building yourself back up so it's a really really challenging performance and she really just hits everything she has like this beautiful grace on screen she has an amazing voice obviously she's absolutely stunning and and beautiful to look at but she's also has such an like an earnest bite to her that's really I think what makes that character in that film so how about you Ben what did you give best actress yeah I'm just going along the same theme again Vivian Lee Gone with the Wind uh, going off that point of her being in the film, I, I'm remembering off the top of my head, but I think of all time of any Best Actress, she has the most screen time of, of any Best Actress winner, and maybe even Best Actor winner. I mean, she completely has control over that whole entire film. Without her and in that performance, that movie would not work at all. And then even just think about outside of the film itself, outside of the story, the amount, the immense pressure and 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 just shit she had to go through. To, to get that performance and to make it work is an incredible feat. It's, I you know, I, I don't know how better, better to express that, but I just feel like that, that she really had the command, that she gave something that was truly memorable. Her character isn't the most likable one, but her performance as Scarlett O'Hara is is iconic. And so, yeah, Vivian Lee gets best support, gets best actress, you know, for me. Uh, moving on to best actor, John, who did you pick? for best actor now this is where we start mixing it up we had three in a row but this is the end to that we are no longer going to be in common here i give best actor to ray milan for the lost weekend i talked a little bit already about this film with it for me winning best editing and also best screenplay but you know without those two we don't have a film but without our lead actor we certainly don't have a film and milan really carries this film on his shoulders because he has to portray multiple people and he also kind of portrays it in a way in the film where he kind of describes drunk Don and the writer Don and he portrays that throughout the film but you don't really realize that until he ha kind of has that revelation and at this point you kind of see his cycle of, of getting alcohol and, and wanting to pursue that and you see his strength but you also see how smart he is, how funny he is and he's such a complex character and I think Milan does that with such grace where it's not an easy thing to do to play someone who's drunk, let alone play different levels of being drunk, let alone playing someone who's very different when they're drunk, when they're not drunk. So there's so many elements to this. 
and he just really goes for it and he sends it and you believe it when he's you know being sincere with his his future wife or his fiance and you also believe it when he's outlandish freaking out about a bat that's imaginary in his room from his psychosis so it's just an insane performance and I think it's really out there and it's really hard to kind of produce and and really show yourself and reveal yourself like that especially in front of a camera and a whole crew and I don't think there's a better representation for a best actor in the past 10 years than for Ray Milan but Ben you have a different opinion so let me hear it I do have a different opinion and for me the best actor from the last 10 films is Humphrey Bogart for Casablanca. First time I mentioned Casablanca for these awards, and it won't be the last time. I'll definitely say that. Uh, Bogart, I mean, come on. It's probably the classics of classics of leading men, of a leading role, really, uh, from this era. And just the way that he's so suave and just so cool you know, in the film. I mean, and then also at the same time, there's a lot of emotional trauma that he is battling and dealing with the whole time. You know, there's like a, a subtext that he could be an, an alcoholic and, and dealing with that as well, you know, throughout the film. And it, it's just there's so many raw emotions that he puts into that performance. And again, just such a classic role, a, a classic actor. And uh, for me, it was it was Humphrey Bogart all the way for best uh, actor. M- moving on, though, to best director, which, again, I think might be a little bit surprising our picks. But, John, you go first for best director. I had to do it. I had to do it to him. I had to give Hitchcock his friggin' best director award for Rebecca because he deserved it. And I talked a little bit about it, of how these films kind of not predict, but help define the film medium and how they kind of slowly help it grow and change throughout the years. And I don't think there's a better representation of that directing wise than Rebecca by Hitchcock because he's really starting to define what a horror film is, what a psychological thriller is. You know, we just had our Halloween episode defining all these, and Hitchcock was essentially an an example in himself, just his name and his genre of filmmaking. And I think you can start to see that in his Best Picture winner, Rebecca, where he is just, you know, you gave it best editing, and I think that best editing came directly from Hitchcock and exactly what he wanted, and to draw out this tension and to build up these characters and to kind of manipulate your actors, you know, whether you want to argue if it's ethical or not, that's a whole nother conversation. But judging from what we get that's recorded and printed out on film, you know, there's not many better performances than what you see in Rebecca. And not only that, it's such a visionary kind of look into a film where you really do see these aspects of horror. You see these like lingering, creepy you know, score that it has and how Judith Anderson is just such an oddball character that you wouldn't really see in a lot of other Best Picture winners. And I think a lot of that comes from his direction. So definitely had to give it to Hitchcock. What about you, Ben? Who did you give Best Director? Obviously, Hitchcock could have been the easiest choice. I oh, could wow. Have, okay. I could have okay. went with the 5 to 10, 20 different directors for Come With The Wind. We even thought about giving them an honorary award Uh I could have went with the best years of our lives. I could have went with Casablanca. I went with John Ford, though, for How Green Was My Valley. And even though he already, I think it was like his third Oscar at that point when he won Best Director and and for Best Picture for for How Green Was My Valley, I still find that film to be so beautiful. It is well shot. It is well told. The actors at, at every level are fantastic. And I think it's just a prime example that John Ford 
It might be one of the best, if not the best director of all time. There are so many arguments for that, but he definitely belongs in that conversation. And just when you look back at all these 10 films, I mean, that one really stands out as, you know, because, yeah, Hitchcock is Hitchcock. And I love Hitchcock, but I don't think Rebecca is exactly his best directing work. Not to take anything away from that. You could look at Gone with the Wind, but then Gone with the Wind, we even said, was more of Selznick's idea. And he, it was more of the producer really driving that film. And then when you just look at John Ford and, and How Green is My Valley, that was really just a, a wonderful, well-told story, a wonderful, well-made film. Everything looked beautiful. Shots were so well-planned, and um, I'm definitely a big fan of it. So for me, John Ford gets How Green is My Valley. So we've had a good mixture of, of different films in the technical categories. The yeah, you know, we had the three uh, you know three of the same choices for actress, supporting actor, and supporting actress. But it comes now down to the best picture of the last ten uh, movies. And just to give everyone a little perspective of what those movies are in the pool that we're choosing from, starting in 1938, you can't take it with you. Then Gone with the Wind, Rebecca. How Green Is My Valley, Mrs. Miniver, Casablanca, Going My Way, The Lost Weekend, The Best Years of Our Lives, and what we will be talking about, Gentleman's Agreement. John, who wins Best Picture out of those 10 films? This was tough. This was really tough, as you can imagine. And I didn't really know if it was going to come down to like what I gave the highest score to, but it did. And it comes down to the last movie that we saw, and I don't think it's related to that. It was really the one that is really the most touching to me and I think that's the best years of our lives from 1946 and I think it deserves best picture because not only is it showing us exactly kind of a a kind of bigger picture of where the world's at and specifically where America is at at this time but it also is just an amazing film where you have this super compelling story of these three men returning from war they all have very different perspectives on the war being from different parts uh, of the army and, and the military, but it's also just an amazing construction constructed film where you have so many of these characters that are all become fleshed out by the end. And you have this amazing score that's guiding us through and amazing cinematography and everything really comes together so perfectly at the end. And when a film can have two characters like reconvening without a single line of dialogue, like, I think that goes without saying how masterful that film is and how well it's constructed. And to me, it's just so beautiful and impactful. And I think it's the most about the human experience out of any of these films. And I, I still think about it and I definitely, that'll be a film that I'll probably watch moving forward year to year. So how about you, Ben? What did you get best picture for the last 10 years? Again, you know, Gone with the Wind definitely comes to mind. The best years of our lives definitely comes to mind. Rebecca certainly comes to mind. Even you can't take it with you certainly comes to mind. Me giving that best screenplay. For me, though, I think it just has to go to Casablanca for best picture. I think that Casablanca, it's a a short movie, but the story is so, there's so much depth to it. There's so much drama. There's a romance aspect to it. There's, you know, action. There's adventure to it. It, it really, and it it really is feels like other world worldly in a way. You know, I guess it being in in Casablanca at, during World War II. You know, it's it's a little bit foreign to an American viewer, but at the same time, it's so iconic. It's so classic Hollywood. It's just everything I think that you would really want out of a film. There's really, 
I think the only criticism that I gave to it was just like that flashback scene. And even then I was just like, it just didn't work for me, but it still works entirely for the story. And overall, out of the 10 films, there I, I, it's a very difficult choice. I mean, Gone with the Wind, I think, comes in as a very close second. Then followed by the best years of our lives as well. And also, How Green is My Valley, but Casablanca to me was the best picture, best film uh, out of these 10 uh, previous film of uh, the 10 previous movies that we just watched. And yeah, that's it. I mean, definitely let us know what you think of, of, of our picks. I think that, you know, it, we're going to keep on growing and expanding. I mean, if I'm thinking back to our 10th episode, I think we both pick it happened one night for, for best picture. Yep. So, and even just to think of from it happened one night to where we are right now, you know, between Casablanca and the best years of our lives, it, it there's huge transitions. There's huge thematical differences. It's growing film. You can definitely tell the trend is going up and up and up. So not every of these films got a uh, little love, but maybe that's okay at the end of the day. But one did not get love. And I think that it's very interesting, again, that it being the 20th episode, because you think back to our 10th episode, some of the issues we had with Life of Emile Zola. So, John, I need to pose this question to you. Is Gentleman's Agreement worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1947? Gentleman's Agreement. A reporter pretends to be Jewish in order to cover a story on anti-Semitism and personally discovers the true depths of bigotry and hatred. Philip Schuyler Green is a widowed journalist who has moved to New York City with his son Tommy and mother. Green meets with magazine publisher John Minifee, who asks Green, a Gentile, to write an article on anti-Semitism. He is not very enthusiastic at first, but after initially struggling of how to approach the topic in a fresh way, Green is inspired to adopt a Jewish identity, Phil Greenberg, and writes about his first-hand experiences. At a lunch party, Phil meets Minifee's divorced niece, Kathy Lacey, a preschool teacher who turns out to be the person who originally suggested the story idea. The next day, Phil tries to explain anti-Jewish prejudice to his young, precious son. Green tells his mother that he's struck by the odd notion that the idea for the article came from a girl at the magazine. His mother replies, Why? Women will be thinking next. Phil and Kathy begin dating. They agree to keep it a secret that Phil is not Jewish. Phil has difficulty getting started on his assignment. He realizes he can never feel what another person feels unless he experiences it himself. He recalls having lived as an Oki on Route 66 or as a coal miner for previous writing jobs instead of tapping a man on, his, on the shoulder and making him talk. He then decides to write, I was Jewish for six months. Though Kathy seems to have liberal views, when he reveals what he intends to do, she is taken aback and asks if he actually is Jewish. The strain on their relationship due to Kathy's subtle acquiescence to bigotry becomes a key theme in the film. At the magazine, Phil is assigned a secretary, Elaine Wales, who reveals that she too is Jewish. She changed her name to get the job. After Phil informs Minifee about Wales' experience, Minifee orders the magazine to adopt hiring policies that are open to Jews. Wales has reservations about the new policy, fearing that the wrong Jews will be hired and ruin things for the few Jews working there now. Phil meets fashion editor Anne Detry, who becomes a good friend and potentially more, particularly as strains develop between Phil and Kathy. 
Phil's childhood friend Dave Goldman, who is Jewish, moves to New York for a job and lives with the Greens while he looks for a home for his family. Dave also experiences anti-Semitism when someone in the armed forces tells him that he hates Jews and they get into a brief fight before the prejudiced soldier is taken away. Housing is scarce in the city, but in particular difficult for Goldman since not all landlords will rent to a Jewish family. When Phil tells Dave about his project, Dave is supportive, but concerned. As Phil researches his story, he experiences several incidents of bigotry. When his mother becomes ill for heart condition, the doctor discourages him from, cons- from consulting a specialist with an obviously Jewish name, suggesting he might be cheated. When Phil reveals that he himself is Jewish, the doctor becomes uncomfortable and leaves. In addition, the janitor is shocked to see that a Jewish name is listed on the mailbox instead of his Christian name. Furthermore, when Phil wants to celebrate his honeymoon at a swanky hotel for rich people in the country, the hotel manager refuses to register Phil because Phil is Jewish and tells him to register at a different hotel instead. Tommy becomes the target of bullies when his schoolmates discover that he is Jewish. Phil is troubled by the way Kathy consoles Tommy, telling him their taunts of dirty Jew are wrong because he isn't Jewish. Not that the epithet is wrong in and of itself. Kathy's attitudes are revealed further when she and Phil announce their engagement. Her sister Jane invites them to to a celebration in her home in Darren, Connecticut, which is known to be a restricted community where Jews are not welcome. Fearing an awkward scene, Kathy wants to tell her family and friends that Phil is only pretending to be a Jew, but Phil prevails on Kathy to tell only Jane. At the party, everyone is very friendly to Phil though many people are unable to attend at the last minute. Dave announces that he will have to quit his job because he cannot find a residence for his family. Kathy owns a vacant cottage in Darien, but though Phil sees it as the obvious solution to Dave's problem, Kathy is unwilling to offend her neighbors by renting it to a Jewish family. She and Phil break their engagement. Phil announces that he will be moving away from New York when his article is published. When it comes out, it is very well received by the magazine staff. Kathy meets with Dave and tells him how sick she felt when a party guest told a bigoted joke. However, she has no answer when Dave repeatedly asks her what she did about it. She comes to realize that remaining silent condones the prejudice. The next day, Dave tells Phil that he and his family will be moving into the cottage in Darien, and Kathy will be moving in with her sister next door to make sure they are treated well by their neighbors. When Phil hears this, he reconciles with Kathy. Gentlemen's Agreement starred Gregory Peck as Philip Schuyler Green, Dorothy McGuire as Kathy Lacey, John Garfield as Dave Goldman, Celeste Holm as Anne Dietrich, Anne Revere as Mrs. Green, June Havoc as Elaine Wales, Albert Decker as John Minifee, and Jane Wyatt as Jane, and Dean Stockwell as Tommy. Gentlemen's Agreement was directed by Elia Kazan. Writing credits based on the novel by Laura Z. Hobson, Rated by Moss Hart and Ilya Kazan. Produced by Daryl F. Zenick. Edited by Harmon Jones. Music by Alfred Newman. Cinematography by Arthur C. Miller. Art direction by Mark Lee Kirk and Lyle R. Wheeler. And costume design by Kay Nelson. Woo! Yeah, so that was a, that was a very lengthy uh, synopsis. And as I hinted to before we got into it, it being very similar to our 10th episode, The Life of Emil Zola, this movie deals with anti-Semitism, again, echoing our 10th episode, Life of Emil Zola. The thing, though, that I immediately want to talk about is my frustration with this film, <laughs> honestly. Um, I think that this film, 
has a good intentioned idea to talk about anti-Semitism. As a Jew, I'm, I'm happy that three years after the Holocaust that people were willing to, to tackle this. I, I applaud Daryl F. Zanuck to go and make this film, even though other studio heads and those studio heads who were Jewish, Zanuck was not Jewish. The other studio heads who were Jewish said to not make this film. He still wanted to make this film anyways, and I applaud that. I applaud the thought behind it, but this film is not well executed ultimately. This movie is feels like it's spoon-feeding middle America. It's spoon-feeding people who actually don't truly understand bigotry, anti-Semitism, racism it, it, in America and around the world. Uh, so I, I, it cre- creates a lot of frustrations. I find Gregory Peck's character to be way up his own ass, <laughs> honestly, about all these issues. He brings a Gregory Peck, I think, is a good actor, but this character himself, I think, is just overall just a dick about the way he approaches the subject matter, talking about anti-Semitism, the way that he his character approaches the idea of how to even be Jewish is completely wrong to me. And uh, so overall, that was what really brings down this film. And and honestly, that's what is the only driving force behind this film, because I think I think we just get this out of the way. There's nothing technically good about this film. No cinematography is not good. I don't find the editing. I don't find the score to be that good. I think this film is actually really easy just to put on in the background and just listen to because visually they're just standing around talking. It feels like it's a play. It feels like a podcast or a play. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think that maybe it's because it's based off of a novel. And I think, and even that novel by Laura Z. Hobson came out from earlier that year in 1947. So I don't know if this movie just wasn't developed enough or really well thought of. And, you know, Zanuck read the film, read read the book and was just like, I got to make that into a movie again. Great idea. And has a good intention thought behind it, but doesn't mean it's executed well. So, um, I feel like that we usually kind of save that reaction towards the end of the podcast, but honestly for this film and for talking about it and as someone who is Jewish, I couldn't not start out by saying that I, I just can't really agree with the way that this film approaches talking about anti-Semitism and, and, and challenging that ultimately. Yeah. It's funny. Cause when we first started and when I first watched this film and as a reminder, I'm, I haven't seen any of these films except for a few, obviously, later as we go. But Ben has. He's gone through the whole list before. So I immediately joked to him and I'm like, well, Ben, I'm not Jewish. So you will be leading this conversation because I do not want to offend anyone or take this in the wrong direction. Not that I think I will. It's just that th- this is one of those hard films like Mrs. Miniver to kind of talk down upon because it's so clear that this film is trying to do something that's helpful like you said, spoon feeding it in a way where it's so obvious and they're beating it you over and over and over again. And essentially this film is just to set up conversations that already make you think about your life. Think about the decisions you made. Think about the weird little microaggressions that you've made to Jewish people in your life while you're watching this to then be like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I should be a better person. In the same way that like the life of Emil Zola kind of teaches you this, but to, to this film... It, I think is magnifying even more where the whole film just feels like it's, I mean, we talked about with Miss Miniver, how there's films that are kind of directly there that are propaganda to just tell you something and, and to push an agenda in a way it's, it seems weird to kind of push to say that an agenda is talking about being 
um, anti-Semitic or to, to be, you know, respectful to Jews. But this film just does it in a way where it, it almost feels disrespectful, especially with how much time we've had and how much time we've seen. And it, to me, it feels disrespectful. I'm, again, I'm not Jewish, so I can't really speak for the group as a whole, but it just feels like a film that shouldn't exist from this perspective. It feels like a film, you know, it's just so easy to tell the same story, but just base it after a Jewish man and a Jewish man who's kind of going through his life. Maybe he's trying to write this article. It could be very similar, but basing it around someone who's actually a part of this group and setting instead of pretending it. And maybe this is a point in film I don't know if we've seen this before. I mean, we see the jazz singer where that's a direct kind of rip on race and, and kind of a blackface performance there um, by Al Johnson, which is extremely offensive, but yet we never really hear about this film being offensive. And in fact, I feel like this conversation that we'll have about this film will probably piss a lot of people off because a lot of people do like this film a lot. So it's it's going to be a challenge to kind of talk about this film. And I think... It's just because of how complicated this story is and the history behind it, I think. Yeah, and the and you brought up a great point that it's not a Jewish perspective. I get that the whole idea is supposed to be that he's pretending to to be Jewish to understand the Jewish experience. But when you really look at it, what does he actually understand about the Jewish experience besides just battling anti-Semitism? If you really want to understand the Jewish experience, you would actually do a, a deep dive into the religion, which is never shown in the film. Yeah, it's basically he, acting like it's not even a religion. Yeah, he, he just it's just like it feels more like he treats it as like a race, you know, and, and, and that's what is more frustrating about it, because he take there, you know, he take this is this is kind of like my big thing is that he bases his whole perspective and idea on his friend Dave, John Garfield's character and he this is the lines from the films he says can i think my way into dave's mind he's the kind of fellow i'd be if i were a jew isn't he whatever dave feels now indifference outrage contempt would be the feelings of dave not only as a jew but the way i feel as a man as an american as a citizen and it again that like just because you're jewish doesn't mean like like that's your your ultimate identity and and to feel that one as a Jew that you're constantly outraged about your disposition in life is I, I think just the wrong way to approach it. And you know, and I would be like one of us saying like, well, how would I be if I were black? It, that's just not how you approach learning about racism, anti-Semitism, at all. You you can't think of it that way because it's not about how I would feel if I was Jewish. Do you think about how I feel as a human that just happens to be Jewish? I wanted to hit on that because yeah, they do they do kind of refer to Jewish men and women as almost a race in this film, and it's kind of hard not to think about that and correlate that to, to other films. And when I immediately saw this, it felt like something that should have been a comedy, like a comedy to to play up the bits and to to play it and and show it in a different way where it's funny, but you are learning these lessons, and the character understands by the end of it which is what should have happened that like he should have not done this like it's in fact wrong for him to kind of exploit the Jewish culture in this way because that's just not the proper way to learn about it just like you said I think a more kind of insightful way is to actually learn about Jewish culture and their history and their past especially right after World War II where we lost so much Jewish men and women and it's honestly not even acknowledged but I wanted to mention that it felt like it should have been a comedy in the same way. And I'm not saying these are good movies, but something like White Chicks, where you take these like 
black characters and you're putting them in like these white women and it's so goofy and ridiculous because the setup is so goofy and ridiculous because it's just not something that's you can really take serious and no matter how well the dialogue is written together with the two of them and how well like their chemistry on film which I don't really think there's much of here it just feels like it shouldn't it shouldn't have been made in the first place, not in this way. And I, I don't know if this is a film that kind of led to these other films later on, like Soul Man in the 80s, which is about a white man pretending to be black. And it's the same kind of experience where they're like doing this. And by the end, their lesson is learning that they should have never done this, that is wrong. So it's I was curious, though, what do you think about it? Did you think about like whether this would have been better as like more of a comedy or how did you feel about that? And did you relate it to some other films where you kind of change your perspective in that way? Yeah, I actually did think about like, oh, what would this have been like if it was a comedy? I mean, this could have been a perfect like Mel Brooks kind of, you know, film. Yeah, it felt perfect for like, Mel Brooks, yeah. But at the same time, I think even Mel Brooks would have brought an actual Jewish perspective and, and showing, and showing yeah. off Judaism. I mean, the... The, the, then this is the other thing is that you know Gregory Peck's character Phil, Phil Schuyler is the way that he perceives that that he can pull off being a Jew is because he has brown eyes and, and brown hair which is exactly why one of the reasons for Hitler you know thinking of the Aryan race and for why he wanted to kill off Jews was to have blonde hair blue eyes and get rid of the brown hair brown eyes so for one the film to bring that out as like that's the defining quality of a Jew is a little is a little wrong to me and and that and that's offensive i think that's one of the most offensive parts of the film and and again it just it it just is so you know unaware and and it could have used the opportunity to have a scene where they celebrate shabbat and they and they learn how to do that or he goes to a temple he you know he he's in new york city and new york city is one of the you know prime areas for jews in america and and he just says really nothing about it. there's only one Jewish character in the film and that's his friend. Actually, there's two. And and so one they have Dave, which is John Garfield's character, his friend that he is like, well, if I was a Jew, I'd be like Dave. But then there's another character, a professor that they that him and Kathy meet at a party. And that is such a goofy scene because it really kind of just sets it up to be like, oh, you're a Jew. You must know so many interesting, fascinating things. I mean, they start talking about Israel and, and Zionism and they bring up Palestine and and, and talking about that and it just feels so goofy and, and out of place to just like throw in there as a thing like, like, like there has to be more and then the other thing that this film because it doesn't expand upon actual Judaism and, and actually talking about it it, it fills its time with being like this weird ro- romance film where Gregory Peck's character is just a dick to Kathy the whole time because yeah like she because again like yeah she clearly Grew, grew up in a privileged life in a privileged family and there's tons of microaggressions within her family that she was unaware of and he can't approach that but the way he approaches that is of anger and abuse towards her he you know he's he he speaks down to her he basically he tells her almost to shut up like all the time like she doesn't know what she's doing that she's stupid and and for that then to be like the this essentially that honestly is really the main story of this film is their romance for the most part and the fact that like he's just a dick about that and then a dick because he thinks he has to be a dick because he assumes that Jewish people are just angry and want to be aggressive about it is just so wrong to, to me this whole time. And so it, it's just it's baffling to watch. And so it's 
it, it, it is mind boggling. You know, even when he says the line for it, he's like, I got it. I got the whole idea for the for this newspaper and how I'm going to call it. I was a Jew for six months. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. Like, I literally yeah. laughed. And I go into these movies with no prior knowledge. So this it made it even more goofy. I think I would have had, you know, a little bit of a buffer if I knew what the film was about going into it. But when I thought about Gentleman's Agreement, I, I actually kind of love doing this as a bit on the podcast now where I kind of guess what the name will be. You know, looking at the name for the film, what will the film be, right? And Gentleman's Agreement to me sounds like it's something related to sex work or like some secret code that you have with another man or just like some hidden thing. Like it's a Gentleman's Agreement, like it's just between me and you. But it's not. And it, it because of that, it took me even further out of it. And it became so goofy that when he announces that that's what the film is and that's, you know, the beginning of our first act launching our character into the film, it was ridiculous where I was like, this cannot be what this film is about. There is no way. And you're talking about like Minifee and like his agreement with. Uh, no, like him announcing to his mom, like, oh, that's yeah. what he's going to do. He's going to be Jewish. Like, I have it. That's it. And I was just like, oh, my God, well, please make the ending at least be about him realizing he should have never done that. And that was an awful idea. And it's not. That's not what the movie is about. It's like a half-assed love story that just feels so forced into it that it was just so frustrating. It made the movie even more frustrating. Yeah. And and where the, the title of Gentleman's Agreement comes from is really towards the end of the film. And it's kind of like what breaks the straw and the camel's back of Kathy and Phil's relationship is because Kathy says that, and she talks about that there's like a gentleman's agreement within her own town in Connecticut that like they don't serve Jews. And she's not saying that like she agrees with that. She's just saying that there's this gentleman's agreement. And and then Phil's character jumps down her throat and like calls her anti-Semitic and accuses her of anti-Semitism. And yes, I agree that she is uninformed, that she that that there is a great point that is made that because you're not saying anything towards the bigotry, towards anti-Semitism, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are against it. It just means you're not standing up to it, which in a sense, it means that you aren't protecting the people that it's hurting. That is well good and well-intentioned. But to jump down her throat because she is saying that that exists in her society and where she grew up in her community is so off base. And it it it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. And so it... Like, I don't even know, like, where we can even go from here because this whole story is muddled by this whole idea. And honestly, I guess probably the best place to start to talk about that is actually Minifee's whole idea to, like, have this. And yet he says that Kathy gave the idea, but he's the one that basically starts saying that, like, we have to start pushing content, that we have to make a story that people are going to read. So he's making this story about anti-Semitism, not because he... Well, he seems to care at some point about about it, but it's really because he's like, well, this is a juicy story. This is going to sell. Yeah, this is cool. Clickbait. It's clickbait. (laughs) It's it's exactly what's happening today. Like, I I even try to think about like what this movie would have been like if it if it got made today. I don't know if it would be allowed to get made today. Well, that's why I brought up white chicks because that would not be allowed to get made today. No, white chicks would not be allowed to get made today, but. At least that film is being so comedic and is so out there, you know, where it's just so in your face where it's like this film knows what it is. And this film is so self-serious. Every single conversation, even the little boy in this film has to have a conversation about our issue here and about, 
anti-Semitism that it just feels so fake. Like everything about this movie feels constructed in order to tell this this like story. No, it's not even to tell a story. It's literally just to send this message that you should not be have these microaggressions and you shouldn't be um, anti-Semitic. So it's just like it it's spoon feeding the rest painful. of America who they're again like if you're thinking about historically it's two or three years after the war has ended people have are learning about what was actually happening what the nazis were actually doing during world war ii and so i get it that like people aren't educated on anti-semitism but this movie didn't like do anything to really like challenge it it was really it, in all honesty this movie actually just challenges the challenges the upper class and the upper class's own anti-semitism it doesn't even tackle the you know you know lower middle class you know anti-semitism in, in, throughout the rest of america and and mostly probably white christian america that is probably the most you know anti-semitic part of the country to be honest and so the fact that like it does it only tackles this one group of people in in darien connecticut as you know, it's just the upper social life people and theirs does absolutely nothing to resolve that everyone is anti-Semitic, that everyone that is Jewish deals with it at every single level. And it it's just it's mind boggling how, how how this movie got made. I get that it's a book. I can can see it as a book, but as a movie, Cosmo, as, Cosmo article, too. Yeah, as well. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like this is an entertainment. I like we talk about how movies should be entertaining. We we've talked about how you know movies like All Quiet on the Western Front, how like that form of entertainment and watching war and on all that trauma. Like, is that really entertaining? But it's really good filmmaking. This is not good filmmaking, and this is not entertaining at all. And I think we'll piss a lot of people off. Well, I don't know about you, Ben, but you tell me what did you think about Gregory Peck as Green as this character who changes his entire life by pretending he's Jewish. What did you think of his performance? Well, I, I think that Gregory Peck has like one of the best voices. Oh, well, that <laughs> it, goes without saying. Yeah, I just think. like that low, really bassy. Like, he has such great voice command, and which is why like when you look at his performance in To Kill a Mockingbird and like Atticus Finch, that is, you know, again, it's a great book, and but that book tackles racism way better than what this book and this film is able to tackle anti-Semitism. And so so to me like yeah he is like this suave guy he's a good-looking guy you can definitely see like he has like a sex appeal but that does not why he's in this film so what is he in there for it's because he sounds smart but he actually sounds more like a jackass from a modern perspective <laughs> he's so far up his own ass about the whole thing he completely approaches it the, the wrong way and he's a dick to kathy the whole time he is such an asshole to her he there, there's like no other way to 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 like argue against that. He is just a total dick to her. He doesn't like ever calmly try to talk to her about her perspective and her growing up and explain to her like why this is bad. He just says, "Well, you're an anti-Semite and you're wrong. And you don't know." You're, like he's just constantly just jumps down her fucking throat, and it's like, why do I want to root for you ultimately? <laughs> and then, and 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 to me, like he he seeks he seeks the anger. He seeks the the conflict and to to battle this and, and a perfect way is when he goes to the flume Inn, which is supposed to be where him and Kathy are going to go on their honeymoon there. Initially, everyone's like, don't go there, even though it's like it's, it's an anti-Semitic you know, hotel and like but he's like, I got to go there. I got to go there and like really give him like something, you know, something for my money. I got I got to go there and he goes there and he starts challenging the 
the hotel manager and he starts being like, oh, well, do you accept Jews? Yes or no? And the guy is basically being like, no, like we don't. And he tells him to get out. And what does he do? Nothing. <laughs> he does absolutely nothing about the whole situation. There's no impassioned speech that they could have written to give him. They could have given the whole hotel lobby about how wrong it is to be anti-Semitic. He just stands there and he's like, oh yeah, you guys are anti-Semitic. Like I was right about you. And he just leaves. So it's like, are you actually learning about it? Are you actually showing off anger towards the people that you should be? Or are you just showing anger to the people that in your lives because that's the only people you can control because in 1940s, men could just control women however they wanted to. I just wish his character took a route where it was like he goes too far, where he catches himself and realizes that what he's trying to do for this article is going in the opposite direction. But he and himself is abusing this power by honestly just taking over this perspective of a Jewish man. But it doesn't take that turn, and he never has that realization. It just brings us back to him succeeding in writing this article and becoming a love story. And this is going to piss a lot of people off, but I think Gregory Peck's performance is really terrible in this, honestly. I think he's just so miscasted. He is so just blunt and, to be honest, frankly, boring. Like, he is one of the most handsome and has, like you said, one of the most amazing voices in cinema history but this is not the right character for him it is so so slow and he just constantly wants to nag at people and and a lot of this is i think the character to its core and not really peck's fault but i know there was some issues back and forth the, the director didn't really want peck originally and and there was that kind of back and forth but i think a lot of it comes down to the character and how he just doesn't fit right but to me it's just he is so miscasted here where it just feels like he should be a leading man in, in a rom-com. Yeah, I could totally believe that and buy this, but him as a reporter, one, he doesn't really have much kind of reporterly like attitude to him. He doesn't really, he feels like he's just writing this article just because it's, like you said, going to give him some sort of attention and notoriety, which is already just an awful way to kind of look at something from a, a kind of reporter point of view. But there's just not much of a redeeming quality to his character. Like you said, he's kind of... Even Elaine Wales in the film, which is like his secretary, who is a Jewish character, he kind of like puts her down by basically saying that she's also uh, anti-Semitic against her own people. So it's such a frustrating watch. And I'm curious, what do you think about that relationship of the film? Oh, with the secretary, it, it's... Again, like you're, he's, taking the, he's taking his power and he is abusing it because... Because Elaine Wales, the secretary, does exactly what he's doing. She did to get hired there. She had to pretend that she wasn't Jewish. She changed her name to be a more Gentile name, and you know, and so he's kind of like, "Whoa, like I'm going to include that into my to my uh, into my article," which is you know, and honestly, like, like even that was like that was like a little too on the nose to include that whole thing. Like he just happens to get this exact secretary who happens yeah. to be Jewish yeah. who is who is pretending to be it. But then when she starts to talk about how she's basically like, well, why would you give up this you know, whole identity? Because she's saying from her Jewish perspective, you have it better than me. Why do you like there? Like, it's so obvious. Like, why would you like why do you need to spend six months pretending to be Jewish? You don't even need to. You should be able to see it so clearly, like the treatment of Jews in this country and in the world. And yet so you still choose this and he gets like frustrated with her that he that 
that she is even accusing him of like wanting to do that. He's like, we have the, he's like, take my hand, feel the same flesh as yours, isn't it? Like no different than it was yesterday. He's like, basically like we have the same face, same eyes, same nose. And like, yeah, because you're human. Like, of course you have the same shit. But then, you know, she and again, and this is another issue I have with the film is that the film throws around the word kike like it's just nothing. Yeah. And I maybe maybe again, it's a 1940s thing where you know, I guess maybe people who were anti-Semitic were using the word kike like it was nothing, but then she even uses it. And as a Jewish person, I, talking to other friends of mine who are Jewish in my in my family, I don't think I've ever heard the word kike used. Maybe once because my grandpa said it. But that was when I was a kid and I was the first time I ever heard it and then he explained to me what the word was. And so then this film uses it at least like 10, 15 times like it's nothing and uses it as if it's like a normal like vernacular as part of like someone who is Jewish in their language, which it just isn't, which is again, offensive to use that and to assume that. And then he gets upset for the word being used. And it's like, you don't have the right to be upset about that word being used. You know what you should do? Not fucking say it, (laughs) you know, not say it, not attack someone because she's saying like, why would you want to give up this perspective? Because she's able to clearly say like, I wish I had this. I wish I had this privilege in life. I wish I was able to be, you know, a Gentile, because that is what America is built for. And it still is built for in many different ways. And so it, again, it's just like this aggressive point and, and view that he takes that he thinks is right. And again, that aggressive viewpoint is echoed by John Garfield's character, Dave. He, he essentially is so in, you know, in step with like that you have to be aggressive about this, that his final scene with Kathy at the end of the film, when he tells her, you know, he does help her get to the idea that, like, without her saying anything, that you're that you're not actually against it, that you're not just doing anything, which is right. But then he says, you, you have to be aggressive about it. You have to approach this from anger, which is just so wrong. It's just not going to work out where you're going to be angry and aggressive about it, that it's actually going to solve the main issue about anti-Semitism and Jewish hate. So it... It's just so off base to actually how to tackle these issues. And it, it it's just frustrating. Yeah, that's where Gregory Peck kind of really rubbed against me the wrong way is because I think this character, Philip Green, is so aggressive. And I just don't think Peck is the right actor for that. He seems like a much calmer, you know, someone who has like their head on their shoulders, who's going to be a little bit more respectful than what we have in this character. So I think it's just a miscasting here for me in particular. But I did find that interesting, yeah, her using that word and him kind of like pinning it against her in a, in a, in in fact is being anti-Semitic. The fact that he's kind of restricting her and saying she's wrong in any way, I mean, she's talking about it from her own experience and her point of view. It's interesting for that word, too. I think it's just a predominantly used word in, in this kind of time period, especially post-World War II. I think it was just probably the most popular kind of insult slang to use against the Jewish people but man it's it's really frustrating and I'm not even sure where else we can really go with this do you have any other thoughts you want to hit on yeah I think we should talk about how shitty the romance part of this whole oh, story yeah see I forgot I, about it that's the, how bad it is yeah because the whole the pretty much the movie really is like just a romance about Phil and Kathy first off they meet once go on one or two dates and then they're engaged like it's like that and like I, what is actually interesting is that she's divorced in the film, and and the film tackles that. I think that would have been more interesting if like that was like way more played up throughout the film. And then they do something that I absolutely hate when after they fight, 
they then come back together and what they do is they smush their faces together and I don't even know like how to describe it the, I guess the best example that comes to mind is thinking like the Adams family when uh, <laughs> or maybe not even the Adams family and what am I thinking of I think it was something else where it's just like a guy and a girl just smushing their faces together and uh, I actually kind of want to just do it with the John right now but it's this isn't a visual <laughs> medium <laughs> to show off exactly what I'm talking about but they smush their faces together it's like oh darling like I'm so sorry like oh, oh it definitely is Adam family now yeah, I yeah you, like, you know what I'm talking about yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, oh yeah. darling like I would never like I can't believe I did that I can't believe I was saying that and just like holding each other and being all like this like lovey-dovey thing and it's just like this is a best picture winner (laughs) like like this is a romance and then we look at like romances from like past movies and there there's so much more passion involved and so like so that's like crazy to think about and then this movie it again it's just constant bickering that takes up you know so many scenes and so much dialogue and 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 just runtime of this film I just don't even care about it after a certain point because I would want to hear about the like actual juicy part, which is about him tackling anti-Semitism, which is done poorly. And then at the end, the whole film ends with him just running back to her and then just fades to black, which is another thing. This movie loves just to do fade to black <laughs> from scene to scene and actually not even resolve They don't know scenes. how to end the they, fucking scene. Yeah, they, yeah. they don't know how to end scenes. Uh, and so the, the movie just ends and they just come together and it's like, okay that's it that's like all you could like think of as is like ending to like what should be more and it's just so like crazy and like off base and so i don't like that but someone who actually i think deserves some praise is celeste holm in this film she is as Anne detry she is so interesting and, and i think has probably the best like you know monologue in the film and she goes at the end but before i get to that how do you feel about the fact that like Phil like leads her on throughout most of the film? He like takes her out like on a date and she's like very into him. She thinks he's a good looking guy. She's a very beautiful woman. And at the end of the conversation, he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm engaged. And then fade to black. <laughs> <laughs> Phil just uses everyone in this movie. That's literally what it's about. And I think the best way to describe this and so related to modern times is I mean, this this word has been used or this phrase has been used so much, but a social justice warrior and and someone who wants to get on a pedestal to bo- to talk about social issues. But it's not because they actually want to talk about social issues. They just want to put people down and they want to yeah. find people and just make them feel bad because that's what makes them feel good. Not because they're helping this marginalized community or this community that's facing such a tragic experience. It's just because they want to feel good about themselves by putting other people down. So I just feel like that's with every interaction with this character. And I think that's why the love story fails too, because Phil just has this motive to only write a good story and to talk about anti-Semitism. And that's literally every conversation that him and Kathy have. They like barely have a human connection because all they do is talk about the themes of this movie and his article. So it's, and they fight constantly. They literally fight constantly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so to, just to go back to Celeste Holm and her speech. So at the end of the, so pretty much the movie, like towards the end, Philip and Kathy are, are broken up. The engagement is off and Phil goes to Anne's apartment and it's there. It's a very intimate setting. You actually feel like at, at this moment, they're like, Oh, he's going to end up with Anne. Like, and it actually feels kind of right. Cause she seems to be way more in tune with the whole idea, even though she doesn't, she actually doesn't even know that he's Jewish until the, the article is released, which I, I think is fascinating and a really good like plot point. But anyways, like she essentially proposes to him 
And he just like shuts her down. He's like, nah, I'm not going to like be with you. And even though like she kind of wants it, but she gives this great speech at the end. And I think this is the best monologue. I think it's genuine. I think it's real and it doesn't feel forced. So she says, oh no, caffeine, Harry and Jane and all of them. They scold Bilbo twice a year. Not the Lord of the Rings Bilbo. This is a political Bilbo I found out. So I was a little sad that it wasn't actually Bilbo. Anyways, uh, they scold Bilbo twice a year and think they fought the good fight for democracy. They haven't got the guts to take the step from talking to action. One little action on one little front. I know it's not the whole answer, but it's got to start somewhere. It's got to be of action, not pamphlets, not even with your series. It's got to be with people, nice people, rich people, poor people, big and little people, and it's got to be quick. And she's exactly right. His article isn't going to exactly just magically change it all. Like, it's not just going to be like, oh, yeah, this article comes out and we solved anti-Semitism. It's actually going from person to person and talking about the issues, which this film doesn't do. Instead, what it does is every time that there's a microaggression, they just become angry and they scold the other person. They say, you can't do that. That's anti-Semitic. That's my Gregory Peck impression. <laughs> so it just like Celeste Holm, great character. She she's the actually like one good part about this movie, in my opinion, but she's barely even in it uh, within the film. Uh, I think that we should also give some praise to uh, Dean Stockwell playing Tommy at the time of this recording uh, was the day that's, that Dean Stockwell passed away. Uh, so which is very sad and, and felt like a very weird timing for us to talk about this. He's great in this movie, uh, you know, playing a little kid, uh, playing Tommy. And even like his like big scene, it like he like his whole purpose is just to give like Phil the opportunity to be like, well, there are like Jews in this world and people hate Jews, which is not a nice thing. And like, that's really it. Like, that's how it's like mainly used. Also to put down Kathy again, too. Yeah, he put down Kathy again. And then even think about like Anne Revere, who plays his mother, who actually doesn't even have a first name. She's just Mrs. Green. And she just like disappears halfway into the film because she like deals with like a stroke, which is like barely shown, barely even talked about. It just like happens and they just shove her out of the story, which I don't get. And so she doesn't even get to really like put give her input into the whole situation so it just feels very clunky and messy. I ultimately want to ask you though, John, like, is it a good screenplay? Because there is like good, I'm not going to deny that the dialogue is actually pretty good. It's just the actual story and approach itself sucks. Yeah. I would say it's not, I would say it's a pretty poor screenplay because it doesn't serve the story and it doesn't serve the characters. It just serves what themes they're trying to push, but it's just a one note theme of, Hey, look at this microaggression. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what you shouldn't do. It's just like beating you over the head and it's not using the characters to kind of like show you that. It's literally just using the characters to constantly tell you what not to do and how you should live your life, which I think is probably the the least elegant way to write a film. So I would, yeah, I would definitely say this is a, a poor script, even though there's, I mean, well-worded, you know, it's so hard to say that, but there are well worded moments and it is well written in terms of dialogue. Like you said, at some points, but also the dialogue is so heavy handed and overused and the classic show. Don't tell. It's like all I kept thinking about when I was watching this. Yeah. It feels like too that, like as good the dialogue is like, it is mainly the only thing there's never really like silence. In the no, movie. this film is constant. That's why it yeah. feels like a podcast. It feels like you're just listening to people talk and have a dialogue. But yeah. It's like you don't even need to know where these characters are located because that never matters to the story. Yeah, it, it has zero 
like has zero consequences. Just like let's just talk, like talk, 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 and um, I guess me and you could talk about this for a while. But it's also just exhausting because it's it's frustrating because we've had like a really good run of movies, and to me, like this being ten years after the life of Emil Zola, like the twentieth anniversary of the Academy, there being so many Jews, and to even find out that Jews didn't even want you know Zanuck to make this film is just frustrating and then they don't even want to promote it the right way they don't even want to approach it the right way and i don't know if that's because they didn't understand how to properly do that maybe i can give a little bit of leeway to that idea but at the same time it's it just i think it just falls on deaf ears i think if you were to show this movie i don't think it would like today i don't think it would really change many people's perspectives i think there are way better movies that battle anti-Semitism that actually talk about this movie doesn't even talk about the Holocaust. And that's the other thing is like, just to go on another rant, like I just thought of is just like, yeah, Minifee wants to make this to, to push content, but he's not like, you have to have the perspective of the Holocaust just happened. There's anti-Semitism in America. Like we have to battle this. It's not even mentioned. It's not even talked about. And you would think that that would be a huge topic of conversation, a huge talking point when talking about Judaism, when talking about, not just Judaism in America, but Judaism across the world, that you have to talk about the Holocaust now. It's now, actually, for me, the Holocaust is one of the biggest, you know, I it sucks to say, but it's like the one of the biggest definers of being Jewish modern is to remember the Holocaust because we have so few survivors. So for this movie to come out, like I would actually be interested to hear what a Holocaust survivor thinks about this film. I, there probably isn't really much out there now to, to even talk about it, but I would be interested to know, like, if they were to see that, like, would they have been offended? Would they have felt like, oh, this is actually propping up the right idea? Or is it just like, it's just another attempt just to try and tell people there's anti-Semitism and it just falls on deaf ears? I'm curious to kind of wrap it up here, unless you have anything else to, to, to really add to it. But I'm curious, you, you mentioned how there are other Jewish kind of producers in and around the studio and other studios didn't want him to address this or really make this film at all. And you said a little bit about how ridiculous that is, but I'm curious from your point of view, why you think they didn't, do you think that there is some sort of like, I don't know, understanding that like they just didn't want this issue to kind of be spoken about. Maybe it's post Holocaust. So they're like, we've suffered enough. Like we don't want more attention on us. What do you think it is? And why do you think that uh, was the case back then? To be honest. And this is just my own cynical way of looking at things is because they it, they probably didn't think that it was going to make them money and they probably didn't think that because it wasn't going to reach middle America. This movie, I, I think, did pretty well at the box office, but this isn't like a big blockbuster movie like Gone with the Wind was or like The Best Years of Our Lives was. You know, it did like decently, but I like that would be like the really the main, I think, crux of like why they wouldn't want it to be made is not because they didn't care about the subject matter was because they probably didn't feel like this was going to, actually work and was actually going to want like one work as an entertainment thing, which is ultimately what films are, which is to get people in seats to pay for a ticket, to buy the popcorn, to watch the movies and, you know, make money. It's that's what it is. And also it just what probably they, maybe they didn't feel that it was actually going to work. It was probably going to anger people. It was probably going to upset a lot of people who weren't Jewish. <laughs> ultimately is what is how I feel like why they would be against it. Again, I'm glad that, I'm glad that Zanuck had the right idea to make it. I'm glad that there is a good idea behind this movie, but it's just not well executed. 
and ultimately like that's just where like our feelings and review of this of this film ends so we have to jump right into the 20th academy awards The 20th Academy Awards were held on March 20th, 1948 at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, California. This year's show was hosted by Agnes Moorhead and Dick Powell, and no film received more than three awards this year, and this would not reoccur until the 78th Academy Awards. Starting with the Academy Honorary Awards, we wanted to mention the film Shine from Italy, which is kind of a... Uh, not technically the first best foreign language film for the Academy, but it is the first foreign language film that was kind of given a special honor from the Academy and enlisted as an honorary award. So this is uh, starting from 1929 when the Academy started. You know, there hasn't been much love for foreign language film. It's kind of been based in the U.S. and American film in particular. And, and I think a lot of the stories kind of reflect that as well, even our most recent film, Gentlemen's Agreement. But it wasn't until this year for the Academy in 1948 where they decided to honor more foreign language films. I think we're seeing a kind of more of a connection. I think we're growing more in technology after the war, too. You know, wars always progress and push technology. We're becoming closer to our foreign brethren. And I'm sure that uh, war also kind of helped us connect. And we had a really tricky relationship with Italy throughout the war. So I'm sure there's a lot of connection there as well. And. I think it was between Italy and the French that were the most commonly nominated or won Best Foreign Language Films, but we wanted to shout out Shine from 1947 because it is particular and kind of notable that it's not technically the first foreign language film, but it is the first foreign language film that was honored with this award, and the film was kind of this neorealist drama, and uh, it's kind of read that the, it's a high quality of this motion picture brought to uh, eloquent life in a country scarred by war and this is proof to the world that a creative spirit can triumph over adversity so again i think it kind of relates to our post-war life and our relationship with italy and i think this is kind of the start of the academy expanding and going beyond just the united states other academy honorary awards went to james basket for his able and heartwarming characterization of uncle remus friend and storyteller to the children of the world and walt disney's song of the south most notably to know that James Basket was the first black male to receive an, an Academy Award. Um, there are also Academy Honorary Awards given to Bill and Koo in which artistry and patience blended in a novel entertaining use of the medium of motion pictures. And finally, there is an Academy Award, Academy Honorary Award given to Colonel William N. Selig, Albert E. Smith, Thomas Armat, and George K. Spore members of the small group of pioneers whose belief in a new medium and whose contributions to its development blazed the trail along which motion pictures has progressed in their lifetime from obscurity to worldwide acclaim. Now, I wanted to just stop for a moment and talk about Basket. And, you know, the Academy, they're sons of bitches, aren't they? You yeah, know? <laughs> yes, they, they are. They, they act like they're doing people a favor and, and being progressive, but they always do it with like a backhanded slap. The fact that... He can't even be nominated in any of the categories and they just want to give him an honorary award. I mean, how else can you take that as them just wanting to like say that they did something without actually doing it? And the uh, the role that he plays is a racist it it's it's a racist caricature 
it the the film uh well, you know song of the south is about essentially the reconstruction era of you know of the south and this movie makes it like fun and whimsical because of james baskett's character because you know uncle remus was this like fun loving guy that was like you know you sing zippity doo da zippity day with and and it's just it again it's just like a backhanded compliment you know that they give to james baskett but it's great that james baskett did get this recognition um and it's great that he was able to receive an award like this even though the award was for again like a character you know for someone like hattie mcdaniel she won it because she portrayed a racist character ultimately so yeah, again, backhanded compliments, which the Academy loves to do. Check out Song of the South on Disney Plus streaming <laughs> now. Yeah, no. Yeah, right. Best special effects goes to Green Dolphin Street for A. Arnold Gillespie and Warren Newcomb. Special audible effects by Douglas Shear and Michael Stenor. Best film editing went to Body and Soul to Francis D. Lyon and Robert Parrish. Uh, it's actually a film noir starring John Garfield, and it's considered one of the best boxing films ever. I'm actually interested to watch it now. Best Cinematography Color goes to Black Narcissus by Jack Cardiff. This is Cardiff's only career win, and he did receive an honorary award in 2001. And he was nominated for Best Cinematography for War and Peace in 1956 and Fanny in 1961. And he was nominated for Best Director for Sons and Lovers in 1960. Best Cinematography Black and White went to Guy Green for Great Expectations. This is based on the Charles Dickens novel, the same name. Director David Lean supposedly saw a stage version of the novel that was slimmed down, giving him the inspiration to make this film version. And is the first of two Dickens adaptations that Lean made, the second being the 1948 version of Oliver Twist. Best Art Direction Set Decoration Color goes to Black Narcissus. Art Direction and Set Decoration by Alfred Jung. Jung's only career win here, and he received a second nomination for the Arthurian Epic Knights of the Round Table in 1954. He was the first film production designer to have one of his pictures hung in the Royal Academy in London. Best Art Direction Set Direction Black and White went to Great Expectations, art direction by John Bryan, set decoration by Wilford Shingleton. Uh, this is Shingleton and and uh, and Bryan's only career wins. And I actually find it to be pretty interesting that the films that won art direction and cinematography for color in the black and white categories are Great Expectations and Black Narcissus. So kind of like a weird uh, thing that both those films got those two categories, but it happens sometimes. Best sound recording goes to The Bishop's Wife by Gordon E. Sawyer. Sawyer was a three-time Oscar winner after this year, and he was originally the former head of the sound department at Samuel Golden Studios. Sawyer, who served as a member of the Scientific and Technical Awards Committee from 1936 to 1977, claimed that the lists of past awards chronologically and by category represented a history of the development of motion pictures. After his death, an honorary award was established in his name to recognize an individual in the motion picture industry whose technical contributions have brought credit to the industry. Best original song went to Zippity Doo from Song of the South, music by Ali Rubble, lyrics by Ryan Gilbert. This song was sung by James Baskett in the film. It's the second Disney song to win the award after Wish, When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio in 1940. 
Disney historian Jim Corcus said the word zippity doodah was reportedly invented by Walt Disney, who had fondness of these types of nonsense words from bippity boppity boo to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Um, one thing, though, I did read about uh, zippity doodah is that it kind of comes from a little racist background, <laughs> you know, this song. So uh, I used to like singing this song, but I don't know if I want to sing this song anymore. Yeah, it's like a part of our childhood in a way, growing up in like the 90s Disney era where both Wish Upon a Star and this zippity Doodah was so prominent, you know, constantly yeah. used throughout our youth and on VHS and DVDs and, and all sorts of kind of Disney media. So, yeah, it's weird seeing that kind of light revealed and also how old these actually are. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Alfred Newman for Mother Who Wore Tights. This is the fourth Academy Award out of nine total. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to Miklos Rosa for A Double Life. This is Rosa's second of three career wins. He won previously for Spellbrown, and we gave tons of praise for his work on The Lost Weekend, and he would go on to win for Ben-Hur in 1959. Best live-action short subject to real goes to Irving Allen for Climbing the Matterhorn. Best live action short subject one reel went to Herbert Moulton for Goodbye, Mrs. Turlock. Best documentary short subject goes to First Steps. This is a film about the treatment of children with disabilities and was produced for the Department of Social Affairs of the United Nations. Best documentary feature went to Design for Death. It was based on a shorter U.S. Army training film, Our Job in Japan, that had been produced in 1945 for the soldiers occupying Japan after World War II, and both films dealt with Japanese culture and the origins of the war. Following the war, Peter Rathfin of RKO, who had seen our job in Japan during his own military service, decided to produce a commercial version of the film. He hired the original writer and editor to work on the new project. Theodore S. Geisel, better known by his pen name, Dr. Seuss, co-authored Design for Death with his wife, Helen Palmer Geisel. Elmo Williams was the editor for both films. Subsequently, Sid Rogel replaced Rothman and became the film's producer. Best short subject cartoons goes to Edward Seltzer for Tweety Pie. Tweety Pie was the first pairing of Sylvester and Tweety and won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film this year, breaking Tom and Jerry's streak of four consecutive wins in this category and winning Warner Brothers their first Academy Award. Sad. Sad that a great streak had to come to an end. Oh, come on. Sylvester and Tweety? Talk I, about another classic pairing. Come I, on. I'm not disagreeing, but let's talk about, like, this is a pretty stacked year. You had Chip and Dale was also nominated. You had Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Mouse, another Tom and Jerry. You had Pluto's Blue Note also from this year. This is a stacked, you know, cartoon. Tubby the Tuba? Come on. Oh, uh, yeah. Tubby the Tuba. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I got to say, this is pretty stacked, but uh, yeah, Tweety Pie, let's go. Moving on to Best Motion Picture Story, the most useless category that the Academy has ever thought of, goes to Miracle on 34th Street to Valentine Davies. Uh, Davies wrote the story uh, for the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street, which was given screen treatment by the director George Seaton. Davies also did a novelization of the story, which is published as a novella by Harcourt Brace and Company in conjunction with the film release. Davies was the president of the Screenwriters Guild and general chairman of the Academy Awards program. I'm curious, just your thoughts on Miracle on 34th Street. Obviously, we've established this podcast. You're a Jewish man. I don't know if you've seen 
this no. film or any iteration of no, Miracle on 34th. Well, honestly, if I were to recommend any Christmas film, it would honestly be Miracle on 34th Street. I mean, you could talk about some of the other, some of the classics, but Miracle on 34th Street is more than just about Christmas. It's kind of about uh, losing your childhood in a way. It's kind of about, you know, that that difference between you becoming an adult and kind of losing that adolescence. And I think it's a pretty beautiful, touching film. And uh, I've seen probably this iteration and, yeah, the, the 90s version maybe. But, yeah, it, it's an interesting it's Christmas story. Me. I think there's, like, multiple. I'm pretty sure there's, like, four or five with with uh, <laughs> the Hallmark Channel, I think, has made multiple versions of it. So, yeah, I was just curious to see yours, especially after talking about a film that's so predominantly all about well no it's not about jewish culture at all <laughs> no, so i not. take that back i take that back it's not at all best screenplay goes to george seaton from the story by valentine davies for miracle on 34th street this is Seaton's only career win in 1955 Seaton was elected president of the academy of motion pictures arts and sciences he would serve three terms now, we also noticed that we're getting Moss Hart from Gentleman's Agreement by Laura Z. Hobson, who originally wrote the novel. How do you feel about Gentleman's Agreement kind of being nominated here for Best Screenplay? Is it worthy? Is it right? Sure. You mean nominated. <laughs> <laughs> Does not deserve to win. Uh, and that's, I think, all I have to say about that. Yeah, I would agree. Moving on to Best Original Screenplay goes to The Bachelor and The Bobby Saxer to Sidney Sheldon. This film stars Cary Grant, Myrna Loy, and Shirley Temple in a story about a teenager's crush on an older man. Shirley Temple was 19 when this film was released. And honestly, maybe it's my own ignorance, but I've always just imagined Shirley Temple as a little girl. So to think of her as like a teenager and like an, an older woman to be playing like more serious roles is actually kind of fascinating. And it actually makes me want to watch this movie just to see how she is as as an older actress and to see how she plays, especially with Myrna Loy and Cary Grant, it seems like a fascinating kind of story, honestly. Yeah. But it's like, you know, they've already done Shirley Temple so much dirty by like, Oh yeah. I'm not denying just that. Like it definitely. Yeah. I'm beyond just the story, but the fact that this story is about a teenager being Shirley Temple as a crush on an older man. It's like, come on. I mean, like it's, why do they got it's 1947. Like why do they got to do it? Like of that? like younger women who are dating older men. It's not, Ugh. It's, yeah, no. There's I do got to watch it though. I mean, that's a stack cast right there. Wow. Best supporting actress goes to Celeste Holm for *Gentleman's Agreement* as Anne Dietrich. This is Holm's only career Oscar, but she was nominated in 1949 and 1950 for her supporting roles in *Come to the Stable* and *All About Eve*, respectively. She started out on the stage on Broadway in the 1930s and gained notable recognition as Adu Annie in the 1943 premiere of *Oklahoma*. She signed a film contract with 20th Century Fox in 1946, following her success on the stage. Then a year later, she was getting praise and awards for Gentleman's Agreement. So, Ben, I know you talked highly about Celeste Holm. She's probably your favorite part of the movie. Is this worthy win here? Yeah, honestly, I, I, I would, I do think that she deserved. It. I thought that she's, I thought she gave actually the only good performance of the film. She gave the only good monologue of the film. I think that. I think she's a great performer. I think in All About Eve, she's really good. So maybe I'm also thinking about that. And uh, I, I just think, I thought that she was like the actual one positive about this film. So if the movie was going to get any sort of recognition outside of its Best Picture Award win, 
Kind of happy that that's who it went to with Celeste Holm. Anne Revere was also nominated in this category uh, for her role in Gentleman's Agreement. But again, she kind of just gets like shooed away like halfway through the film. But she gives a decent performance also. Best Supporting Actor goes to Edmund Gwen for Miracle on 34th Street as Chris Kringle. I actually chuckled a little that he was credited as Chris Kringle and not as Santa Claus. Uh, that's just me. This is Gwen's only career win. He was in film since 1916. Uh, his roles range from playing a cheerful murderer in Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent to the long-suffering husband and father in Pride and Prejudice, and then again as Santa Claus in The Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. I think he is the reason why I watched that movie. I think he's so endearing and charming as a man who is Santa Claus. Best Actress goes to Loretta Young for The Farmer's Daughter as Katie Hallstrom. This is Young's only career win, and she was also nominated for Come to the Stable in 1949. This film tells the story of a farm girl who ends up working as a maid for a congressman and his politically powerful mother. Now, Young's win here was actually considered an upset. Everyone had expected Rosalind Russell to win for her Lavina in Mourning Becomes Electra. The order of awards were mixed up for their from their usual order on purpose to make each award seem more special. Does that sound familiar, John? <laughs> God, I'm getting chills uh, from the 93 yeah, yeah. Awards. Yeah, Variety wrote that this was done so that there wouldn't be any rush for the exit when the big awards are made. The last award of the night was finally presented, and it was for Best Actress. So far, Variety's polls has been dead on with all the... Pro- with all the projected predictions coming true. Many in the audience decided that Russell was probably the winner, and some began to vacate their seats in order to head to their limos and get a head start on all of the after parties. Actor Frederick March approached his microphone, envelope in hand, to make the big announcement. As he began to read the name on the card, Russell began to get up from her seat. March suddenly did a double take and announced in a surprise voice that the winner was Loretta Young from the far- for The Farmer's Daughter. There was an audible gas in the auditorium, and Young went on stage and shocked herself to accept her Oscar. As Variety wrote, The gasp that arose from the audience when Mrs. Young's name was read by Frederick March just about matched the heaviest gust whipping around the Shrine Auditorium. So I guess the Academy loves to change around awards for dramatic effect. <laughs> Very dramatic effect. Very dramatic effect. Or a big fart in the wind. Or <laughs> flash ears. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Best Actor. That went to Ronald Coleman for A Double Life as Anthony John, another movie that I'm actually really interested in seeing. So this is Coleman's only career Oscar win. Uh, Coleman was nominated three times for the Academy Award for Best Actor. He was at the third Academy Award ceremony, actually, where he received a nomination uh, for two films that year for Bulldog, Drummond, and Condemned. As you remember, we've talked about how early in the Academy's history they would kind of stack movies together and for actors and actresses and give him for multiple performances for the year. Uh, he was also nominated again in 1942 for Random Harvest before winning for A Double Life in 1947, in which he played the role of Anthony John, an actor playing Othello who comes to identify with the character. Uh, so he kind of goes a little cuckoo over the uh, the role, which again, like kind of like perks, you know, perks my interest in wanting to see it. Uh, he also won the Golden Globe Award for this exact role. And in 2002, Coleman's Oscar statue was sold at auction by Christie's for $174,500. Best Director goes to Elia Kazan for Gentleman's Agreement. 
This is Kazan's first of two Oscars, as well as receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1998. He won for the 1954 Best Picture winner, On the Waterfront. Kazan's work includes as a stage director for Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire. He would transition to film in the 1940s, where he gained recognition almost immediately. Considered an actor's director for his close work with pulling out performances from his actors as well as the utilization of method acting. During an interview in 1988, Kazan said, I did whatever was necessary to get a good performance, including so-called method acting. I made them run around the set. I scolded them. I inspired jealousy in their girlfriends. The director is a desperate beast. You don't deal with actors as dolls. You deal with them as people who are poets to a certain degree. A turning point in Kazan's career came with his testimony as a witness before the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1952 at the time of the Hollywood Blacklist, which brought him strong enough reactions from many friends and colleagues. His testimony helped end the careers of former acting colleagues Maurice Konofsky and Art Smith, along with the work of playwright Clifford Odets. And a fun little fact, nine actors and actresses have won an Academy Award in a Kazan film. Yeah, so he didn't really get to talk about Ilya Kazan. And, and to to be fully transparent, I love Ilya Kazan. And like most of his movies, I I love. Uh, on When we get to On the Waterfront, I might spend like three hours just talking about his you know, <laughs> directing of that movie. And so for me, like Gentleman's Agreement is just so shocking because it like he calls it like one of his issue films, which like he does like to tackle. But this movie doesn't have the same gravity and 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 especially when you think about like the method acting and like the actors and actresses and performances that he was able to pull out, it just doesn't work the same way. I mean, like when you think about like his biggest films being On the Waterfront and A Streetcar Named Desire, I mean, those the the acting that went into those movies far, 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 far exceed what Gregory Peck did in, in this movie. So it's actually kind of shocking that Kazan you know when the quality of this film versus the, those other films to me is like very is shocking it is like an early film for him but at the same time he also directed death of a salesman and a streetcar named desire on broadway which are like two of the best fucking plays ever so this movie is just like again baffles me and it baffles me that kazan you know that like that, that that's like what the end result was like was this movie but i don't know maybe it's just because Again, like it was the subject matter and like he was this new hot and up and coming thing. So maybe that's why he was giving the reins to this movie. But I love Ilya Kazan and, uh, you know, good for him for getting his first Oscar. But I definitely think that his most deserved one will be talking about for On the Waterfront. But moving on to the Best Picture Award category, the nominees are Miracle on 34th Street, Great Expectations, Crossfire, The Bishop's Wife and the winner of the 1947 award. For Best Picture goes to Gentleman's Agreement to Daryl F. Zanuck for 20th Century Fox. Uh, when Daryl F. Zanuck actually stood on the Oscar podium picking up his Academy Award for the Best Picture, he said, I should have won this for Wilson from 1944. Yeah, that really cracked me up. I love that. And I think it shows that maybe he wasn't the biggest fan or outcome. Maybe he had backlash from other producers and in the film community. But that makes me want to watch Wilson more than anything, honestly. Yeah, just because it like it was like he like told people to not talk about it around him. And the fact that he made that as a joke is good and lighthearted. But 
let's get into some stats and figures about Gentleman's Agreement before we give our ultimate uh, decision on the film. So, Gentleman's Agreement currently holds a 76% Rotten Tomatoes percentage, an average seven, an average rating uh, is 7.1. Uh, the top critics percentage give it a 64%, and their average rating is a 6.9. The audience score is a 78, with an average score of 3.8. IMDb gives it a 7.2. No score on Metacritic. Uh, it won three total Oscars for Best Picture, Director, and Best Supporting Actors out of eight total nominations. So, John Boy, what would you give Gentleman's Agreement? I gave Gentleman's Agreement one of my lowest scores at a number 45. And for comparison, I gave Cavalcade from 1932 a 45. Grand Hotel, a 40, and then my lowest Broadway melody, a 30. So it's kind of getting gearing there as being kind of in the low bottom five of mine. And, you know, I don't think there's too much I can reiterate on this, but I really just think it's just doesn't work as a film when it comes to its characters trying to tell a story. I think it's so heavy handed at the detriment of trying to actually tell a story while also trying to be a romance. I just don't think any of it really works. And it just comes off as really heavy-handed and not the right way to kind of tell this story, in my opinion. But I know many people will disagree. How about you, Ben? Do you disagree? What are your thoughts? What's your score? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to leave the score as it is. Uh, but I gave it a 67. One because I was thinking about like, okay, this film is in my lower ranked ones, and I was like, I gave the Great Zigfield the 68. I'm like, well, that sits below that. So I'm giving you a 67. That's like the highest I will give this film. So I gave it a 67. Again, I, I mean, I went on a bunch of rants about this, but I think that this film was uh, was good intended, intended. And I think that like that deserves some sort of merit. I think Celeste Holm is really good. There's nothing technically good about this movie. Uh, Gregory Peck is a dick in this movie. I mean, he's a, has a great voice, but just like not a good character at all. So I gave it a 67. I probably should give a lower rating, but I'm just going to say that like, I'm never going to give it above a 67 because the great Zigfield is better at a 68 for me. So our average ratings, John, you're at a 69.6 and I'm at a 75.8 for the 20 films that we have watched. So John, is Gentleman's Agreement worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1947? No. No. I'm, I'm putting the hammer down. I'm hammer saying is no. down. I'm putting the matzo ball soup to the side. I'm saying no. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. The matzo ball soup does not deserve <laughs> to be with this film. It just, I, I would have loved if this movie even talked about matzo ball soup. Dude, it didn't even mention any food. They, like, not even any sort of Jewish there's food. There's nothing like, Jewish about this film, even though Phil Green Schuyler thinks that he is Jewish because he's angry all the time. Oh, God. So, I also wanted to mention that out of most Academy Award winning, especially Best Picture Films, there's a great book by uh, Stephen J. Schneider who wrote uh, a book called A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, I'm sure. Some of the people listening to this own this book. I have this book. It's a great book for really just trying to like watch as many films before you die, you know, catalog so many of these films. But Gentleman's Agreement is actually not listed on there. And it's one of the few uh, kind of handful of films that are not seen in that book. So I think that goes and says a lot as well. And you mean the one of the few like best picture winners, one of the few best yeah, picture okay. winners that are omitted from that book. So 
it's I find that pretty interesting too. I mean, I know other people really love this film, and there's really it's not not much else to really say about it from my point of view here. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat. I feel like I said my piece. Um, I had a lot of fun talking about uh, our like little Oscar award ceremonies beginning of this uh, podcast. I look forward to the next ten that we do. I mean, to think that we are at twenty episodes is is pretty amazing and astounding. Um, I'll definitely say that when we do get to our 30th episode, I'm going to want to talk so much about that movie. So we'll see how that <laughs> award ceremony goes. But for right now, that's gentlemen's agreement. John, do you have any last minute thoughts uh, before we sign off? No, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks for sticking on the ride here. Whether you listen to one episode or all of them, we appreciate y'all. We love y'all. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, we do. We love you all very much. So I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod. And on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthy submissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthy submissions at gmail.com.